you would turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 24 this Lord's Day as we continue to see the providence of God in the study of His Word. If you were with us last Lord's Day, I gave the very deep spiritual comparison between Saul and David to Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Uh, that's kind of the picture that we have here. Uh, old Wiley Coyote is never going to catch the Roadrunner, and we have learned in our study, and we'll continue to see how uh, Saul is not going to catch David, at least not be able to kill or harm David. And he throws a spear at him, and he misses. And he orchestrates events for David's demise, and his plans fail. He has him uh, cornered on the side of a mountain, and he is able to escape. Every time that Saul has David in a position or a situation where it seems uh, that David is going to die and harm is going to come to him, it never works out for Saul. He's unable to kill David. But in today's text, we see the tables are turned. Uh, rather than Saul being in a position to uh, try to attempt to kill David, now we see David will be in a position where he can take Saul's life. It's a turning of the tables, and it's interesting to see how David responds in this situation. So we're going to look at this as we walk through the 24th chapter of First Samuel, and at a reverence for God's Word, if you're able to this Lord's Day, if you would stand together as I read God's Word for us. This is what the Holy Inspired Word of God says. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, 
you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me on this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. You will pray with me. Father, as we consider your words and the events of David in another cave, help us to see how you work out and accomplish your will in your timing and in your ways and help us, Lord, to wait for you and to trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are now in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel. My intention and desire is to preach through 1 and 2 Samuel, which if you have read ahead, you may know, consist of 56 chapters. And so here we are nearing the, the halfway point of our study, and if you've read ahead, you know, even from the heading of the next chapter, that uh, Samuel is going to be dying soon. And that may seem a bit peculiar to you that we have these two books named after Samuel and he's not even around for more than half of what's covered in this. And if you've been with us in the study, you know that First and Second Samuel, that they're really not books just about Samuel. In fact, you may think of them as books about David and Saul and and they do consist of stories about them and the history of them, but I would put before you today that they're really not books about Saul and David and Jonathan. First and second Samuel are books about God. Every book of the Bible is a book about God. And it's through reading and studying and meditating on these words and considering how God has worked throughout history in the lives of men like Samuel and Saul and David and Jonathan that we might learn even more about God, about His will and about His ways. And it's important that we have that perspective because if we don't, 
we can err in how we understand passages like this and how we study God's Word. We can walk away from the Scripture with this idea that we just need to be more like David. That we just need to be more like uh, Jonathan. That we just need to be more like Samuel. At least be more like them on their good days when they make the right decisions. And while there are things for us to learn from these men, we must always understand that when we walk away from God's Word, that we're not looking to try to be like these men. We are looking to better know and understand who our God is and what it means to walk by faith with Him, to trust in Him, and to hope in Him. We should walk away with a a desire to better understand and respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so that's how I want us to walk through this passage that historically is very much about an interaction between Saul and David in a cave, but as we consider what takes place between these two men, I I hope that we will learn things, not just about Saul and David, but about God, and specifically about how God goes about accomplishing His will. And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. We're reminded here that God will accomplish His will in His timing. He accomplishes His will in His timing. So, how do we see that? Well, let's just walk through this text together. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you'll remember that David and his men were going around a mountain. They were fleeing from Saul, and Saul and his much larger army were coming after David and the men, and God in His providence raises up the Philistines to attack back at home so that Saul and his men have to turn around and go and deal with the Philistines. Well, the scripture left off there in chapter 23 that David and his men had gone to the wilderness of Engedi, and now Saul has dealt with the Philistines and he's returning in his pursuit. And now the scripture tells us he has 3,000 men with him. We know that David's numbers had grown to about 600 men. It's very clear here that he's outnumbered, that Saul is raging and ready to attack, and he's pursuing him. And then we have these, these little details that God's Word gives us at times. And it seems that as they're on their pursuit, that at some point Saul's looking to his men, and uh, he's inquiring of them about where the next rest stop is. <laughs> and he needs to use the bathroom, essentially, is what's happening here. And so they, the memorable name for a rest stop, I guess, Wild Goats Rocks is up ahead. And so they tell him, well, we've got Wild Goats Rocks up ahead. We can pull over there. And sure enough, they do. And they go into a a very large cave system here because within this cave system in the providence of God, this is where David and his men already are. And so the scripture tells us that David goes in to, or excuse me, Saul goes in to relieve himself. The King James and some other translations say he goes in to cover his feet. You can put two and two together, no no pun intended there, and figure out exactly what Saul is doing here. And so he's in a very compromised situation. Well, David's men become aware of this, and immediately they go to David and they say, look, it's very clear what's happening here. God has put your enemy in your hand now where have we heard that expression before i mean just in the last chapter saul hears about david who is in a compromised position 
David and his men are in a fortified city. It is walled up and gated. They can't just flee out the back door. And when Saul hears about this and that David's in this compromised position, his immediate thought is what? God has given him into my hand. Well, here it seems that David's men are are thinking perhaps more like Saul than they should here. And they just recognize that Saul's in this compromised position and that surely this means that God has given Saul into David's hand. And then they say, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, do you remember when God said that to David? You shouldn't, because we don't have any record that he did. Now, this doesn't mean that God didn't say this to David. And in fact, as you look back throughout 1 Samuel, you have these different times where God is very much communicating his will to David through Samuel and through other prophets. And it very well could have been that during one of those encounters that perhaps the Lord said this very thing to David, or... It could be that David's men are trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit here. And that they're just looking at the circumstances and the situation, and they're they're just trying to interpret the will of God based on these circumstances, based on how they feel. I mean, surely this must mean. It's not so different than how we, at times wrongly, might seek to interpret God's will through our circumstances, through our feelings, through situations, that we might get to the point like perhaps they did where we even try to put God's seal of approval on it. We talked last Lord's Day about this, how sin can be so deceiving in our lives that it fools us into thinking that the very wicked thing we are doing is approved of by God. Now, I do think there's a difference here because as we walk through the passage, we we see this consistent reminder that, that, that God very much had put Saul in that cave. God is sovereign over these things. David recognizes that, and David uses that as an opportunity to say, even though God had put you here, I did not take your life. But there is something for us to note here about how David's men seem so uh, quick to say this is certainly the will of God, to the point that David goes in with, I believe, the intention of taking out Saul. He's ready, he's armed, he stealthily sneaks up on him, and yet in that moment he makes a decision, rather than to take Saul's life, to just cut off a piece of his robe. Now, at first glance, as you read that, you might think, well, this will be so that David can then show this to Saul later and can say, well, I could have killed you and I didn't kill you, and that will come into account. But notice how David responds to this. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I shall do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Now just think about this for a moment. This is David. This is David who went up against Goliath and who slayed the giant. This is David who took on the armies of the Philistines. This is David who did some some pretty bloody work to win the hand of his wife in marriage, Saul's daughter. This is not a timid warrior. 
This is not someone who's scared to get bloody. This is someone who has been in some intense battles and has a lot of blood on his hands. And now here he is in the cave and he's cut off a piece of fabric and he seems so overwhelmed and so convicted. Why? Goliath was an uncircumcised Philistine. The Philistines were the enemies of the people of God. Everyone up to this point that David has gone up against and battled against were clearly against the Lord and against the will of God. They were not a part of the people of God. This was different. This was Saul, who although Saul was unrepentant and although Saul was pursuing wickedness by his own admission in this chapter, Saul was still the man that God had anointed to be the king. Saul was still the man in the position of reigning as king. And David in this moment has overcome by guilt of his sin that he had taken out his hand against the Lord's anointing. Now again, you might look at this and say, well, I mean, did he really? He cut off a piece of fabric. <laughs> well, to us, that's what it seems. We don't, we don't consider uh, much stock in the, the fabric that we're wearing this morning. I, I this morning, in getting up, uh, did not go into my closet and look around and say, well, which holy vestments will I wear today? <laughs> I put on a colorful shirt. Sandy says, it looks like spring. I said, well, yeah, yesterday was the first day of spring. There, there was no prayer involved in this. This was not a holy garment. It's a land's end garment. <laughs> on the way to church, I thought it was kind of cold outside. I, I hope I have a jacket in my office, and I did, and I put it on. <laughs> These aren't holy vestments. These are just a jacket. I, I might sit down the wrong way, get up the wrong way, tear a piece of it. It's not going to be any mourning, gnashing of teeth, repentance. And so we have to stop and consider there's a, there's a difference here in the context of what's taking place because, because Saul was the Lord's anointed. You might think of 1 Samuel 15, there's that encounter that Samuel has with Saul where Samuel uh, is telling Saul, God's going to judge you. God's going to remove his hand off of you. And if you remember in that moment, Saul grabs on to Samuel's robe, and as Samuel turns, he tears it. And Samuel looks to Saul and says, the kingdom is going to be torn from you, Saul. That there's something about that robe. There's something significant there. There's something symbolic there that when the, the robe of Samuel is torn, that, that's a picture of what's coming to the kingdom because of Saul's sin. Here Saul is in a cave, his robe is torn, but there's a picture, this is symbolic. And the symbolism here, I believe, is that David, in deciding not to take his life, is still symbolically coming against his kingdom and taking off a piece of that robe. One commentator I read this week said it this way, David's confiscation of a portion of the royal robe signified the transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. He's essentially saying, you've got on my robe, Saul. You're sitting on my throne, and I'm taking it now. 
And in that moment, as he does that, that is why I believe he is so overwhelmed. Because in this moment, David is convicted of the sin in his life. And what is that sin? The sin was his failure to trust in God. To accomplish his will in his timing. David, who wrote the psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit that we read earlier, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. In this situation, was not waiting for the Lord. And he immediately is convicted. His, his conscience is overwhelmed. And it draws him to repentance. Essentially, David, by taking that robe, was saying, Lord, I'm tired of waiting. And I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And immediately he feels convicted of it. Maybe you can identify with that a bit with David. You want to trust in the Lord. You want to do the right thing. But you're tired of waiting. You've grown weary. You read the promises of God and you want to trust in the promises of God, but it seems that God is in no hurry to accomplish His promises at times. And so then you and I, like David, are tempted to look for a shortcut. For a way out. For a way to put things in our hands. And friends, there's a warning here. Be careful about looking for shortcuts. Adam and Eve in the garden, you think about that situation where God prepares for them a sanctuary. And we've talked much about this. And what was that sin against God? I mean, God clearly said, you are to obey me and and don't eat of this fruit of the tree. But but think about that situation for a moment. Here's Adam and Eve in the garden. And they're not full of all wisdom and all insight. I mean, God is teaching them. They are learning from God. They are growing. God is giving them instruction pre-fall. He instructs them, do not eat of this tree. Why? Because they needed instruction. They needed to learn. They needed to grow in their understanding. And part of what takes place here is the serpent comes as he basically says, well, you can know it all now. You can be like God now. I can give you a shortcut. And they take it. And devastation comes. We see a similar picture years later with the second Adam. Jesus, early in his ministry, is in the wilderness. And here comes the enemy to tempt him in much the same way. The enemy shows Jesus this picture of the kingdoms and says, if you'll just bow down to me, all this will be yours. (laughs) Now, we know that Jesus is Lord over all creation. We know that all this would be Jesus's. We know that Jesus will reign over all. We know that Jesus created all this to begin with. But what is it that the enemy is offering Jesus in that moment? I mean, this is what he's already going to get, isn't it? He's offering him a shortcut. He's offering him all this without the cross. Without suffering. Without trial. Without heartache. He, He can just take the shortcut and he can have it now. We have to be careful about shortcuts because, friends, in our spiritual life and our growth and our sanctification, there there are no shortcuts. There are no off-ramps to avoid suffering. There's no bypasses around trials and temptations. 
That there's no cut-throughs to avoid pain and heartache and suffering in our lives. No, God not only ordains these things and His providence puts these things before us, He uses them for our good and for His glory. And He grows us through them. We need to be careful about looking for shortcuts. And how might we be careful? Well, we do that by trusting in God. By waiting on Him. And by trusting in His timing. He will accomplish His will in His timing. Second, we see that God will accomplish His will in His ways. So, Saul gets done with his business in the cave. Uh, All this has taken place and he's oblivious to all of it. And he leaves the cave. And as he leaves the cave... Uh, David comes out of the cave and David calls out to Saul. And so we have in verses 8 through 15 here, uh, essentially David's words to Saul. He shows him a piece of the robe that he cuts. He explains to Saul, listen, I, I could have taken you out and I didn't. He notes that he won't put his hand out against Saul because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And then notice what happens there in verse 12 and following. He, he then pleads with the Lord to deal with Saul. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And this is really the key exchange, the key passage, I think, here. Because David is not looking at Saul and saying, uh, Saul, I could have done this, but I didn't do this because, Saul, you don't deserve this. <laughs> He's not saying that Saul's without sin. He's not saying that Saul doesn't deserve consequence. He's not saying that Saul shouldn't be punished. He's acknowledging that it's not his job to do those things. He's saying that vengeance is the Lord's. That punishment will come on the wickedness of man. But that will come from God. And in this situation, God had not instructed David or put David in a situation where he is to be the sword of God. No, he has told him to wait. And David is acknowledging that and acknowledging that God will be the one who brings judgment on Saul. It is up to the Lord. That's why it says, my hand will not kill you, but God will deal with you in his timing and his way, Saul. That's essentially what he's saying here. Judgment is coming. But it's going to come in the way that the Lord is going to bring it. Now that's a picture of David trusting God here. Now listen, David David has failed in the past. He he will fail in the future. But here, he's trusting God. He's trusting God to deal with Saul. Think of how often... We read in books or we watch in movies or TV shows stories of revenge. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I like a good revenge story. (laughs) You know, someone is victimized, someone is abused, someone is wronged, and then there's this plot that runs throughout the film, throughout the book of how they're going to be avenged, how revenge will come. There's that, that, that turning point in the end where, where the bad guy gets what's coming to him and none of us weep for the bad guy. We, we applaud it. 
We celebrate it. Ah, yeah, he got what was coming to him. We, we love a good revenge story. But what we learn from this passage is that God's people are not called to revenge stories. We're not called to get back at those who've wronged us. Well, we're not called to exact revenge on the evildoer. But what are we called to? We're called to trust in the Lord, to deal with wrongdoers in His way and in His timing. Again, that's the picture in Scripture, isn't it? You go back to the garden. <laughs> and there with Adam and Eve, the, the serpent, the enemy wreaks havoc. I mean, he comes against God, but he comes against Adam, and he comes against Eve. And, and you can imagine for Adam, he has every reason to be enraged at the enemy. And here God comes and says, okay, here's what's going to happen. And perhaps if you're in Adam's shoes at that point, you're just waiting for God to say, uh, Adam, here's a sword, cut off his head. Adam, I want you to deal with the serpent. Adam, I want you to crush his head right now. It's time for judgment. It's not what God says. God gives consequence to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. And what does he say? He says, the seed of the woman is going to do that. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the enemy. And so God doesn't give Adam and Eve a timeline. He doesn't say how soon that's going to happen. But, but maybe they, like us in their nature, they wanted a good revenge story. And so maybe they're just waiting day after day. And generations would wait day after day. And generation would come and generation would go and the promise would remain, but it would be unfulfilled for thousands of years. But God always keeps his promises. <laughs> and one day the Messiah would indeed come and Jesus, truly God and truly man, would live a perfect life. He, he would do what the first Adam had failed to do. He would follow God and he would obey God and he would crush the head of the serpent. He would fulfill that promise of God. And in that, among many other things, we're reminded that God indeed does accomplish his will, but he does it in his ways. He doesn't tell David to take matters into his own hands. Friends, he doesn't tell us to take matters into our own hands. He tells us to trust in Him. We who love a good revenge story are called to what? Pastor David read this just a moment ago. I'll read it again. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now just stop there for a minute. That's a big pill to swallow. There's a lot there. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Okay, all right, Lord, how do I do this? How, how, do, I, how do I bless these people who are persecuting me? How, how do I do this? Well, he goes on. Verse 17, well, don't repay 
anyone evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so if possible, as best we can, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but be overcome, but overcome evil with good. Heaping burning coals on his head. <laughs> now, without any insight to that, we, we probably read that and think, well, well, that's, you're, you're just kind of, you're harming him in a way. Maybe you're taking revenge in a back doorway here. <laughs> and interpreters vary on what that means. It does go back to the Old Testament. And every time in the Old Testament we see this picture of heaping burning coals on someone's head, it's a picture of judgment. And so I think what Paul's saying there is that by, by doing these things, perhaps in the grace and the goodness of God, the wrongdoer might be brought to conviction of sin that they then can repent. And so our call in a lost and wicked world is to do our part according to God's will that the wrongdoer and the evildoer might be brought to repentance. You and I were the wrongdoers. You and I. We read this passage and perhaps, as I went back earlier and said, we're, we're tempted to look at how can we be like David, how can we do like this. We, we read this passage and we consider ourselves the David here. But we're the Saul. Well, we're the wrongdoer, we're the evildoer. There's none righteous, not even one. We are born enemies of God. We are born with that revenge story on our heart because it's a lot easier to look at other people's sin than to deal with our own. And the reason that we are to bless those who persecute us and not curse them and to, to treat them with kindness and goodness and love that they might be brought to repentance because that's exactly how our loving God has dealt with us. You're not here this morning because you figured it out and did it all right. You're here because of the grace of a loving and sovereign God who showed you mercy. Who took the blinders off your eyes and mind that we might see that we were the wrongdoer and rightly repent and turn from our sin. There's a gospel opportunity here as we trust in God and His timing and His ways. And that brings us to the final part of this passage. And the third point there in your outline, we're reminded that God is faithful to those who put their trust in Him. We see the faithfulness of God here. And so notice David says all these things to Saul. And notice Saul's response, verse 17. You're more righteous than I am, David. <laughs> this is the Saul who not long before this had been telling other people, I've heard about that David. He's the conniving one. He's, he's hiding in the crevices. He's, he's always out to get me. Now he, his heart's being affected. And now he, he recognizes, David, you're more righteous than me. You, you've repaid me with good, whereas I repaid you with evil. I was the conniving one. 
I was the wicked one. I was the one hiding, waiting to take you out. Saul acknowledges his own sin here. And then verse 20, I I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Here, this is the great confession of Saul that he now is willing to say, I understand this is the will of God and the way of God and it will come to fruition. The same Saul who had looked to his son Jonathan and said, listen, if you don't help me take him out, you're never going to sit on the throne, son. He's now looking at David and saying, Yeah, David, you're going to sit on that throne. It's yours. So much so, he sees this and understands this, that then he turns and asks David to bless him and to bless his offspring after him, which again, we're going to get to that down the road. And so, if, if the story ends at the end of chapter 24, what do we walk away with? Well, how how things go at the cave today? Oh man, we had a we had a revival at the cave. <laughs> I mean, you won't believe what happened. Saul, Saul walked the aisle. Saul came forward today. Can you believe it? Saul, Saul came. He said, "I'm I'm a sinner, and David's going to be the king." Saul turned his life around, and yet. The story doesn't end at the end of chapter 24. And as we go on, we learn a couple of things. First, we learn there's a difference between sorrow and repentance. Saul is sorry, but Saul is not repentant. And we do that same thing often. We, we get caught. <laughs> we feel guilty. We vow that we're going to change, but we don't change. We sin again and again. Why? Because there's no genuine repentance. And sorrow without repentance doesn't bring genuine change in our lives. And that's why you you encounter this all the time. Perhaps you find yourself in a situation where, where you or another says, Well, I've said I'm sorry. What else do you want? We want repentance. We're called to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. That there's a comparison here between a sorrow that leads to repentance and a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. And friends, a sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance will not save us. No one's going to heaven because they said they were sorry. No, we need to repent. And we need to trust. And what we find in Saul, as you continue in the story, is he's not genuinely repentant. Why? Because he goes right back after David. It's not long after this that he's going to pursue him and try to kill him again. He's sorry he got caught, but he's not repentant. And God doesn't bless that. But God does bless. God is faithful to those who will put their trust in him. And that's what we see here with David. David here is trusting the Lord. He's trusting that he's going to accomplish his will and his ways. And as a result, the Lord is faithful to David. But notice what we learn in God's faithfulness to David. It doesn't mean that all the suffering ends in this moment. It doesn't mean that in this moment where David is trusting in God... 
and, and trusting in the faithfulness of God, that God says, okay, David, you passed the test. You didn't take out Saul. And so now the throne is yours. I'm taking Saul out of the picture. No more running. No more suffering. It's all yours now. It's not what happens. David's going to keep running. David's going to keep suffering. David's going to write a lot more psalms as a result of what takes place in the coming chapter. Trusting in God does not exempt us from suffering. But we're called to trust in the Lord nonetheless. And so that's where I want us to, to leave this text today, is with that question, are we truly trusting in the Lord? Are we truly trusting in Jesus? We're going to close with a hymn this morning, one that we've sang before, and one that Lord willing, we'll sing many times again. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Some of you know the story of this hymn. It was written by Louisa Stead. She was born in England in 1850. She moved to the United States 21 years later at a camp meeting. She heard and responded to the gospel. She committed her life to follow the Lord, to trust in him, to become a missionary. She was married and had a child and as they were preparing to go to the mission field she experienced tragedy her and her husband their four-year-old daughter were at the beach one day her husband saw there was a a swimmer who was struggling and drowning he went in the water to save them and he that day lost his life and he drowned she struggled as we would with the loss of her husband. And in the grief of her soul, she wrote these words as she looked heavenward. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood, just in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Friend, trusting in Jesus today will not exempt you from trials and tribulations, from suffering, or from running from enemies. <laughs> but I can tell you this, there's nothing sweeter than to walk by faith and to trust in him. And that's what we invite you to do this Lord's Day. If you would stand together as I pray for us and as we sing together, this hymn of response, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness and your word. And this reminder from your word today that you indeed will accomplish your will, but you do it in your timing and in your ways. So help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to trust you in the midst of suffering. 
Help us to trust you in the midst of trial. Help us to trust you in the midst of waiting. Help us, Lord, to trust you. And Lord, we see in your word that the, the way we trust you is to trust in your promises and to live in obedience to them. You have called us to repentance, not just sorrow, to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. And so if there's any here this morning, Lord, who's yet to turn to Jesus, to confess him as Lord, to walk in obedience to his word, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And for each of us, Lord, I pray that we would indeed trust you today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, as we sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, I'll be down front and available to counsel with you, to pray with you. It may be that the Lord's leading you to come and, and confess your faith in Jesus as Lord before this congregation today to, to take that step of obedience and baptism to start the process of joining this church through church membership. It may be you just need someone to pray with you. And so we invite you to come as we sing. Tis so 